Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University. For this recording, I am thrilled to be joined by Professor Justin Raycraft. Professor Raycraft is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Lethbridge, having earned his PhD in anthropology at McGill University last year. He is author and co-author of several notable articles and book chapters, including those published in the African Journal of Ecology, Anthropology and Humanism, and World Development. In this podcast, we are discussing his solo authored article published in Human Organization in 2021, which is entitled Islamic Discourses of Environmental Change on Swahili Coast of Southern Tanzania. Professor Raycraft, thank you very much for agreeing to this podcast. Firstly, I just wanted to ask you to discuss your article in broad brushstrokes. It draws on ethnographic fieldwork conducted in Msumbati, a rural village on the Swahili coast of southern Tanzania. Why this village in particular? Uh, what were your intentions when you embarked on this fieldwork? And how did being there shape your research questions and findings? Thanks, Philip. And first of all, thanks for inviting me to, to be a part of this podcast. And it's uh, it's great to meet you and, and find out about this uh, wonderful initiative that you've got going, bringing together uh, a variety of scholars working on uh, East African history. So to go back to, to my paper, uh, it began, in a sense, uh, under the supervision of Dr. Vinay Kamat at UBC. And uh, I would just preface things by saying I, I believe he has a, a book proposal on the go that, that should come out in the in the next few years. And so if this uh, particular talk is of interest to people, I would encourage them to, to keep an eye out for his work in the future. And when I began the, this study, uh, in a sense, I had been interested in the political economy of health, which might seem like a, a total pivot from, from the actual content of this paper. Uh, and I had had some experience working in Swaziland at the time the country was named Swaziland. Recently, it's been renamed to Eswatini working with miners who had uh, moved to South Africa uh, and, and as a consequence of their sort of labor-related mobility, uh, they had had different sorts of health outcomes than those who had stayed put, particularly working in mines and, and it, along the lines of infectious diseases and, and the spread of them. Uh, so I had been interested in the dynamics between migration and health. And uh, I had spoken with Dr. Kamat and about this uh, particular ethnographic context, and uh, he had mentioned that with the con increasing constraints on the local fishing economy, there was possibly a trend of young men moving out of the village uh, to other places to find work. And so I was interested at the time in sort of documenting some of those dynamics and linking it back to, to health. What ended up happening was, was once we got to the field and we sort of arrived uh, in various villages along the coast on, on motorbikes. Nsimbati, which was the which became my ultimate field site, hosts the, the main office for the marine protected area. And uh, when we went to sort of introduce ourselves to the park managers in the office, we found that the roof of the office had been destroyed. Uh, people had actually blown up the office with dynamite. And we sort of came to realize that there was discontent and, and local level resistance to uh, the very prospect of marine conservation in this village. Uh, so that's why I sort of ended up steering towards that topic and working in Nsimbati in, in particular. And of course, that sort of pulled me away from, from health research and medical anthropology into uh, the domain of environmental anthropology and looking at 
uh, what we sometimes call the human dimensions of, of conservation. Once you're there, can you just kind of briefly outline your research methodology? Um, what challenges, I suppose, ethically and practically did you face in your field work, if any? Um, and how did you overcome them? And I suppose there's a probably theoretical grounding you can uh, mention here too. Yeah, and, and I should sort of uh, continue that story a, a little bit more to, to say that I arrived in a sense at a series of, of research questions that sort of emerged from the, the, the field itself. And uh, that was in a sense to do with how local communities felt about marine conservation, um, how it sort of affected their everyday lives, uh, particularly in the context of their livelihoods. And that, of course, was, was sort of an umbrella topic that covered a, a variety of, of interrelated uh, subtopics. And, and of course, what we find in anthropology is that it's sort of the messiness of, of life in practice. There's there aren't really neat boxes that sort of allow us to categorize topics into to one particular domain or another. Uh, it's really about documenting the particularities of, of everyday life in, a, in an ethnographic context. Um, so the methods, in a sense, were very kind of Malinowskian. I, I, I just arrived on a on a beach with a, a bag in hand. It, it's a it's a Simbati is is on the Matuara Peninsula and. Uh, in a sense, it's it's a very remote part of of the the country, and uh, you have to cross a little bridge with a culvert underneath. And, and in some senses, it becomes an island when the water sort of moves into the wetlands from the ocean and and sort of surrounds the village. So you get this sort of sense of of isolation uh, when you're working there. And I was at the time still learning uh, the language of Kiswahili and uh, really trying to, to get a sense of what was going on. And so the, the method, in a sense, was, was about emplaced participant observation, trying to develop an understanding of the rhythms of everyday life and, and what people did to sort of to get by, in a sense, and, and what their, what, how they derived meaning from, from their everyday lives. And so very anthropological in that sense. And, and the findings, I think, will sort of start to unfold them. Uh, as I move along, but there there were quite a, a broad set of, of wide-reaching findings. So you transitioned to working with the idea of uh, environmental anthropology, uh, and you translated the word Mazingira, uh, which is Swahili, as the environment. And I wonder, could you kind of expand on this word Mazingira? Does it cover the same semantic range as the English word? Uh, in other words, how did your respondents conceptualize the environment and how does the, that conceptualization shape the narrative you offer in your article? Yeah, that's a good question. And, it, and there was sort of concern around this kind of linguistic chasm between uh, in terms of translating from, from English to, to Swahili. And uh, Dr. Wally at um, MIT wrote a book called Rough Waters, where she was looking at the social and political dimensions of marine conservation on Mafia Island in, in coastal Tanzania. And she sort of has quite a few pages that sort of dig into this. And, and in her sense, it Mazingira was sort of born as a almost a neo-colonial term that was a way of sort of projecting uh, Western understandings of the environment onto a, a cultural context that it didn't quite map onto one-to-one. -one. So there are some concerns, particularly when we think about the concept of nature and how it, um, whether or not it translates. But that said, it is still a word that is used very much 
in people's everyday discourse. And they, they very much understand what it means and use it in, in a particular set of ways that I would say does reflect relatively closely how I think of the term environment. And, and so there are certainly some issues to, to take into account in terms of how we think about meaning in, in, in the context of nature and the environment, but it was the term that I ended up using. And there, there are perhaps some limitations to, to thinking about uh, environmental change through a, through a lens that is in some senses more of a Western one. Okay, so your interviewees, they were primarily people who you refer to as Makonde. Now, for non-East African specialists, they will probably not know who uh, or the history of the Makonde. Um, could you just give a little bit of an overview of um, who the Makonde are? How do they define their identity? And what is their um, relationship and position within the town or village of Umsimbati? Yeah, so in a, in a sense, uh, the Makande um, are relatively recent uh, in the in terms of the deeper history of East Africa. They're relatively recent uh, migrants to the Swahili coast, based on sort of oral accounts generated from other scholars. It seems that around the 14th or 15th century or so, they called the areas around Lake Nyasa or Lake Malawi home, and and they probably practiced some form of fishing on, on Lake Malawi. And at some point after the 15th century, they began a, a series of migrations towards the coast. During that time, they sort of began to branch off into different groups and, and more or less they followed rivers and at some point they crossed over and, and different groups settled on, on different plateaus in a sense. And one particular group made its way all the way to the, the coast of Matwara and became sort of uh, entangled in a cultural sense with Islam and, and what we call sort of the, the Swahili coast. And this was uh, the, the Tanzanian Makande who, who now live in, in Simbati, which is a, a village on, on the Matwara Peninsula where I did my work. In terms of their cultural practices and identities, nowadays on the Swahili coast in, in Matwara, they are fishing communities and, and largely dependent on the inshore fishery for, for livelihood with dugout canoes and, and they fish for a variety of, of coral reef fish in the, in the inshore fishery. Some with access to larger boats to pursue offshore fishing, but this isn't as common. And they also more or less depend on farming as well. And, and farming is a little bit more challenging in this area because of the saline soils close to the coast. So there is some level of cashew farming that, that goes on that's sort of uh, brought to market in town and um, very small scale leafy greens and, and tomatoes and onions that sort of form some of the, the standard dishes that people eat. In some parts of, of Matwara, wheat and, and rice could be grown, but it's not as widespread as it is in, in the interior. And so they've developed their own sort of economic system relative to that particular coastal environment. And their cultural identities are, are tied to their own long histories of, uh, as migrant people from, from the interior, um, but also tied very much so to uh, Islam and, and the Swahili coast. 
an interesting sort of dynamic that sort of sets the Makande apart from some of the other groups that moved from the hinterlands to the coast is that those who sort of adopted Islam uh, developed sort of a, a set of distinctions with some of the Makande that ended up settling in, in northern Mozambique. And there's sort of a more of a cultural distancing than you, would, you might see with some of the other groups that, that moved to the coast. And so there are some frictions and, and internal tensions uh, across some of these Makande groups. But of course, uh, an important question that I think is taken up uh, in other contexts by scholars is the extent to which their engagements with, with Islam are nominal relative to their pre-existing uh, identities as Makande people, or whether it's uh, something that's sort of come to sort of occupy a very central role in their identities uh, compared to their historical origins. And probably the, rea the reality is somewhere in between where it's kind of this synergistic blend of, of aspects of, of their uh, cultural worlds that they surround themselves with. So you've highlighted a number of issues um, here related to food systems and also Islam. I'm going to ask you questions uh, on both of those topics. But I'll start with the one on, on food systems. Um, you mentioned agriculture and uh, fishing. And also you, you discuss a lot in the article about um, structural inequalities as well. And therefore, I wondered how do climatic and economic conditions put pressure on local food systems? How did local uh, respondents understand those pressures? And were there, were there different understandings between fishers and farmers? Those are sort of very important questions that um, frame a lot of my interpretations in a sense. Um, climatic conditions, one of the big ones throughout uh, Tanzania is uh, rainfall, of course. That tends to vary. Uh, most of the time you have bimodal patterns of rainfall, which um, mean there's sort of a punctuated set of dry and, and wet season. There are also sort of prolonged droughts that occur over uh, periods of time. And, and so obviously those bear directly on uh, farming practices, crop cultivation, because there aren't advanced uh, irrigation systems in these areas. These are rain-fed farms. Uh, so when there are variable conditions in, in rainfall and let's say increasing drought over time, then that puts a lot of pressure on, on, on the farmers. Economic conditions, I think, are, is, is another important one to highlight because in this particular part of Tanzania, it's in a sense a, a political periphery that has its own uh, history beginning in the colonial period. And it was at one point uh, sort of coveted as a potential area where it could be, um, where ground nuts could be exported uh, back to Britain. Um, but then when that enterprise failed, it was sort of neglected as a, as a region. And some of those same patterns of neglect, selective neglect, you could call them, kind of continued through the post-independence era, uh, where it was, it's, it's such a far periphery geographically as well as politically, right in the, the very southeast uh, point of, of the country uh, adjacent to Mozambique. Uh, so there is a, a sense of, of um, a sense that people have to sort of make their own means to sort of provide for themselves rather than sort of receive governmental services. And that likely led to a very 
high dependence on on the, the coastal fishery. Unfortunately, the, the, the coastal fishery in recent years has not been particularly productive. And it's complicated to sort of ascertain why uh, those declines have occurred. Of course, there could be environmental factors at play. Uh, it could also be to do with offtake at the local level, although this would have to be empirically proven, and, and that's certainly challenging to do. But what is certain is that there have been some declines in the productivity of that fishery. And so the, that sort of change, um, coupled with the uh, uh, the effects of, of a lack of rainfall on farming and the, the widespread poverty and lack of formal employment opportunities that are around have sort of altogether compounded this sense of insecurity that you get in rural Matara. Um, so these are the sort of environmental, the political and environment and economic environmental factors that frame everyday life. And thinking about those um, factors, in what ways do they inform the response to the construction of the marine conservation building, which you said had been blown up by dynamite, and also um, natural gas projects which are occurring in the region as well? Yeah, so that's another aspect of people's environments, right? Their lived environments, these new kind of, from their perspectives, mega projects in a sense that are being implemented all around them by various stakeholders that are not from the communities, usually government stakeholders in partnership with private companies that see the environment in a particular way, see it in terms of natural resources that can be commoditized and extracted or sort of bound and protected and used to promote tourism. The communities sort of see these aspects, these processes happening and, and they feel like they don't have control over, over the um, circumstances that affect their everyday lives. And particularly when they're living in conditions of poverty, uh, when there are environmental constraints on their livelihoods already. And then you have these actors that are uh, from outside the communities coming in and, and essentially trying to monetize or exploit the resources that are available there people develop this sort of resentment and, and, and this feeling like, in some senses, a sense of helplessness that we don't have control over what's going on. And that to me was probably the reason why people would, people responded by blowing up the park office. I mean, that if we interpret that in a sense as a, as a gesture of agency, as a form of overt resistance to say, we won't sort of roll over and take this, it shows some of the things that can be done uh, to push back. But I think if you start to unpack agency in a little bit in a, in a broader sense, and of course that was an, an acute instance, but over a longer period of time, if you're there in the, in the village and you're living and you're talking with people, it struck me that there was sort of a set of discourses that was coming up around how people came to terms with things that they felt were outside of their control and these, these aspects of their environments that they were able to sort of, in a sense, externalize. And, and for good reason, uh, probably because a lot of these processes were being driven by actors that were outside of their communities in the context of the natural gas extraction project and, and marine conservation. Uh, the natural gas extraction project in particular is, is sort of a great example of this because there were, the government, in partnership with several foreign companies, was extracting natural gas from Manazi Bay, just the, just off the shore of 
of the, the village and people can see it happening. And then through a loan from the Import-Export Bank of China, they were building a 500 kilometer pipeline uh, all the way to Dar es Salaam with the intention of sort of generating electricity in the commercial capital of the country. And yet at the exact same time, there was this marine protected area that was sort of encapsulating that uh, extraction and local fishers were being told they're not allowed to, to fish in their dugout canoes. And so people sort of developed this um, sense that the resources were being exploited by people from outside of the community. It was something that was outside of their control. And so in their everyday discourses, they started to kind of refer to these things that they felt they didn't really have say in and they didn't have um, autonomy to determine the, the, how these processes would unfold, they sort of began to um, classify all these different aspects of their environment under the broader umbrella of, of God's plan. And so that was sort of where, where my interest in this particular religious explanatory model came about was um, I was fascinated with how all of these these elements of, of the environment, whether it was uh, lack of rainfall, whether it was extractive industry, whether it was changing market conditions, these were all sort of being grouped together as, as in a relational sense, as, as representative of the fact that, that villagers did not feel they had control over their the circumstances of their everyday lives. Now, this focus on um, God's plan is really kind of at the core of the article which is entitled, as I mentioned, Islamic Discourses from, from the outset. Um, I suppose that, that that kind of begs the next question. One of, the, Of course, one of the recurring themes of your interviews is the perceived role of God as a provider, uh, as a being who has control over soil fertility, climate, crop yields, uh, and markets even. Um, and I suppose when we think about, on the one hand, extraction and conservation, also the other kind of those big global development movement is also, I suppose, sustainability uh, and responses to climate change. And I suppose when you think about your um, interviews and your responses, which focus on the role of God uh, in an understanding of the environment, I wondered if you could kind of expand, what does this tell us about the need for locally grounded and culturally specific responses to the challenges of climate change and structural inequalities? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And there's a lot to unpack there. One of the things I sort of wrestled with was the extent to which people's responses, where they were sort of mentioning God's plan, the extent to which those were sort of idioms that could have been manifest basically in any ethnographic context anywhere. And there were sort of more surface level discursive things or whether they sort of represented a more deep seated um, way of knowing and, and worldview. And that I think took some time for me to unfold. And to some extent, it's probably both that, that there, is, there is an idiomatic aspect to that in, in people's, the language that they use. But at the same time, it's, it did seem to me to be rigorous enough that, that um, it, was, it was representative of a, a, a way of thinking about their place in the world and how they saw themselves relative to all these changes that were going on. And there's a number of sort of implications that can come from that, um, depending on what 
particular aspect of environmental change one is trying to study. So some aspects of their environment are very much under their control and they're well aware of this. What, what uh, farming practices they use, um, let's say questions around which fertilizers and when, what fishing practices they engage in, what, what types of equipment they use and how they regulate their offtake and access to the fishery and those sorts of things. Those are very much under their control. So how they sort of uh, conceptualize their own locus of control is certainly significant because if people are just externalizing things altogether, they might not draw the connections between their practices and, and the impacts. That said, we have to be we have to take that line of argumentation with a, a big heap of salt because in my experience, uh, people have, have very sound understandings of their everyday lives and the impacts of their their actions and their practices, and they have all sorts of customary institutions at the local level to regulate access. And so they seem to me to have a pretty good grip on things in that sense. But the larger sets of influences like climate change or something that's uh, probably is outside of their locus of control in terms, certainly in terms of the drivers, but even in terms of the, the processes that are ongoing at a regional level. Uh, in terms of government responses to them and such, people are feeling like those are largely out of their control too. And I think there's something that something to be said for tailoring, let's say you want to take an adaptation type of approach or coping with, with environmental change. Well, those have to be grounded in local conceptions of, of the environment, what, what aspects of the environment people find meaningful, how they sort of see themselves and how they envision the future and what their aspirations are and how they envision their own sense of control and, and, and positionality and all of this. I think that's those are important aspects to, to take into account, particularly if there are going to be some, uh, let's say climate related initiatives that are put in place that might directly constrain local livelihoods further. I think um, uh, the, that that has the, the consequence to, to make people's everyday lives even harder, um, which I think we should we should be cognizant of when for when we're uh, making these kinds of, of climate related policies. Thank you, Professor Ray Krapp. Those are really interesting questions and I think leave us on a really good note to kind of stop the conversation about your article there. Think about the possible wide implications of the article and how, um, how to ground this in a, in, in a wider context. Before I let you go, however, I just want to ask you one final thing. Um, I know you've just started a post at the University of Lethbridge. I imagine that's a bit of a whirlwind for you. But what are you working on now? What can we expect to see, read, or hear about from you uh, in the near future? Yeah, so I, I continue to do research, ethnographic research in Tanzania. For my doctoral work, I worked in northern Tanzania with Maasai pastoralists. Uh, particularly in the Tarangira ecosystem and, and the areas adjacent to national parks, which are unfenced areas, and there's a, a, a dispersal of, of wildlife that occurs seasonally into community land, and a variety of sort of community-based conservation areas and initiatives that are ongoing in community lands outside of national parks. Uh, and so my research is, is, is based on uh, participatory and, and collaborative research with pastoralists uh, in that ethnographic context. And, and sort of the thematic bridge to, to this particular study in Matwara 
is that question of how communities feel about conservation, how they situate it in relation to their livelihoods and, and the things that matter most to them. And, and so that's sort of the, the, the main focus of, of my current work. And related to that, there's a, a series of smaller studies on human-elephant conflict and, and human-carnivore conflict, uh, particularly uh, elephants in, in the maize farms of, of local farmers and uh, carnivores uh, attacking uh, livestock for the, the herders. Um, so there's a, a number of issues at, at play um, in an applied sense. And uh, again, it always seems to come back to that question of, of how communities think about these wider uh, processes of, of conservation and development that are affecting their lives. Uh, so keep an eye out for that, and, and that's something that I'll continue to be working on for the next few years. I very much look forward to hearing more about that, and as I'm sure you know, but listeners may also be interested to know that this issue of conservation amongst the Maasai is a very hot-button topic right now, and you'll absolutely be able to find a, a wealth of journalistic information uh, on the conflicts currently occurring uh, in northeastern Tanzania. Anyway. Thank you very much, Professor Raycraft, for your research and for discussing with, with me today. I also want to thank um, Sam Glee-Riemann for organizing and producing the COD podcast. Uh, and I would like to thank you, the listener, for streaming uh, and or downloading. Uh, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and this is the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 